When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Unformidable. We take a look at some of the less heralded myths in our beloved franchise's quirky history, because to us, every player who dons the orange and blue is in some way unformidable. So perhaps the highlight of the Mets' recent uh, West Coast road trip was watching Eduardo Escobar hit a somewhat unlikely cycle. I mean, not incredibly unlikely if you look at him as a player and his skill set, and he certainly has a lot of extra base hits and is not immune to the triple uh, just, you know, when you come to the plate needing the triple, uh, you're not exactly banking on the cycle. But uh, with that in mind, we've already covered Eric Valent and his cycle in a previous Unformidable. And some of the other cycles the Mets have recorded are players probably a little too talented for the subject of this podcast. Your McReynolds, your Reyeses, your Hernandezes. Even John Olerud, one of the slowest players I ever remember seeing, who managed two cycles in his career, including one with the Mets. Uh, but this tier tonight is someone I can't believe I haven't covered yet. The man whose face I personally see, uh, I imagine I would see if I were to turn to an encyclopedia entry for five-tool player. The one and only, very unformidable, Alex Ochoa. So, Alex Ochoa was born... On March 29th, 1972, in Miami Lakes, Florida. 
He was drafted in the third round of the 1991 MLB draft by the Baltimore Orioles out of Miami Lakes High School. He was a toolsy prospect, as you will, as you might remember if you remember him when he was coming up or when he was a Met. And if not, as you'll hear over and over in this podcast, scouts thought he potentially possessed all five potential everyday player tools of Cuban descent. Uh, Ochoa, according to various reports I've seen, was dubbed the laser beam, uh, I think in part for his electric throwing arm, one of those five tools, as well as the Cuban missile, Prioroldis, in some quarters as well. But he was you know, believed to have a lot of talent, and then he started flashing those tools in abundance in the Orioles minor league system. And I think, you know, in particular, when the toolsy prospects develop and start putting uh, stats and actual accomplishments to it, uh, it doesn't take long for the scouts to fall for them and for those prospects to get hyped. And I feel like that was an era where there was just burgeoning national attention to prospects and prospect lists, Uh, and from 1993 to 96, Ochoa ranked anywhere from 35 to 89 in Baseball America's top prospect lists, topping out with a number 35 ranking prior to the 1995 season, as in 94 in AA, at age 22, he hit 301 with 14 homers, 82 RBIs, and 28 stolen bases. So, as you can see, flashing at least three of those vaunted five tools. So you have this vaunted prospect in the Orioles organization that they're very excited about. Um, Perhaps you've also heard that the Mets were pretty bad in 1994 or 1995 after really bottoming out in the early 90s, 92, 93, And as a Mets fan, perhaps you've also heard of one Bobby Bonilla and his ties to the New York Mets. But for all the sturm und drang about Bobby Bonilla as a Met, the -the off-the-field issues, the the show-you-the-Bronx threats, the calls up to official scorers, and of course the, you know, post-baseball career absurd mockery of the Mets over a contract quirk that literally dozens of teams employ and, you know, I'm very quick to mock the Mets, you know, they are family, so when other people do it, it's a little harder to take, but the, you know, the Bonilla Day, Bonilla contract thing really infuriates me in how absurd and how specific, how people take it to mock the Mets when it's just such a stupid thing to do so. Anyway, long tangent. My point was simply... Bobby ben- it's easy to forget that Bobby Bonilla didn't perform that badly in a Mets uniform from 1993 to 1995. In uh, 93 and 94, he was good for 3.2 and 2.8 war, according to baseball reference. <laughs> baseball <laughs> reference. And then Bonilla had an incredible offensive first half of 1995, uh, and he would leave the Mets, as we're building towards, uh, when he his final line in 95 of the Met was 325 average, 385 on base, 599 slugging percentage for a 984 OPS as a Met in 1995. But the Mets were struggling. His contract was nearing its end. I think there was one more year on it after 95. Um, and, you know, with the myriad off-field issues, the, the Bonilla-Mets marriage was clearly troubled. And... The Mets were looking to trade him, but they were not just going to give away a productive player with 1.5 years left on his contract. 
a long-winded way of saying, while people may remember Bonilla as a joke or reason to mock the Mets, he had value. And so it was on July 28, 1995, with the trade deadline pending, the Mets continued to hold out for Ballyhood prospect Alex Ochoa as the Orioles pursued Bobby Bonilla. The 1995 American League East was a pretty tight dogfight. Uh, the trade deadline was approaching. The Red Sox were four and a half games up on the Yankees and the Orioles. Uh, they, were, they were in striking distance, and of course there was the new wild card uh, to contend with. Even though the Yankees and Orioles were essentially 500, uh, the American League was a bit of a logjam with only the juggernaut Cleveland Indians and seemingly the California Angels, though that would very historically change down the stretch in 95, uh, heading for the playoffs. Uh, and at that time, Peter Angelos actually cared about winning. So when in late July, the Yankees made a huge move for the playoffs, trading for the previous year's Cy Young Award winner David Cohn and slugging outfielder Ruben Sierra, the Angelos wanted the Orioles to respond in kind. According to the Baltimore Sun, the Mets and Orioles had discussed Bonilla for weeks, but the Mets were adamant. Uh, Joe McElvain, their GM at the time, was adamant that Ochoa be included, and the Orioles balked, uh, continuing to try to sell Joe Mack on a young relief prospect named of Armando Benitez as the centerpiece of the trade. Uh, but McElvain continued to assist on Ochoa. Uh, the deal was considered dead, but... The Orioles continued struggling in late July, and the Yankees acquired Cone, prompted Angelos apparently to inform his general manager, Roland Hemond, to acquire Bonilla, even it meant including the coveted Alex Ochoa. And if you didn't follow the prospect Bibles back then, as fewer people did, I think, than they do today, and weren't aware of exactly what the Mets were acquiring, McIlvain in trying to hype up his trade and probably generate interest for a pretty moribund franchise, very faithfully, at least in my mind, slapped that label on Ochoa in in hyping his trade. Uh, direct quote, when, when the Mets acquired him, he's a five-tools guy. If you break down his tools, his arm is the strongest, similar to Mark Witten's. He can play right field. He's a good runner. We think he's more a 15-20 homer type, not a 30-30 guy. But uh, the Mets were obviously very excited about the acquisition and were looking for things that would excite the franchise. And as fans, then, you were looking for things that would excite you about the franchise. So uh, so it was that Ochoa came to the Mets, perhaps with some unfair expectations. Ochoa would get a September call-up in 95, in uh, middle of September, uh, made his Major League debut September 18th, 1995, at the age of 23, and would single in his first at-bat, going the other way against the Braves' Steve Avery for his first career hit, uh, and would go 11 for 37 over uh, 11 games in September, uh, not flashing a lot of power, which probably was uh, you know, the tool that failed him, so to speak, uh, in, in the majors, and, you know, for a right fielder, perhaps... Faithfully didn't have enough power to be an everyday player, but uh, you know, hit 297, uh, so it was a decent little stretch of a call-up, you know, enough to, I think, continue to hang some hopes on the player. And while he wouldn't start the 96 season with the Mets, uh, his early stretch when he first got call called up was certainly enough to uh, make you 
hope those hopes were not unfounded that Ochoa could perhaps develop into an offensive force. Of course, offense was not a problem for the 1996 Mets. Todd Hunley, Bernard Gilkey, and by a virtue of a couple of requests I've gotten online, a soon-to-be unformidable subject, Lance Johnson, uh, all had career offensive seasons in 96. Uh, but you know, the Mets were hoping the whole franchise would turn around based on you know, not just offense, but the Generation K uh, era of pitchers. Uh, but they were not panning out and almost universally injured, I believe, that year. So the team uh, was struggling in 96, a year I think that the organization hoped to finally emerge out of several terrible seasons. So with the team itself not posting a good record, uh, in tri- Ochoa was tearing up AAA in 96. Uh, at the time of his call-up in June, he was hitting 339 with a 528 slugging percentage. Not sure who the everyday right fielder would have been then. It could have. Uh, I know Chris Jones was on the roster and uh, uh, flat earther Carl Everett as well. But I think to an extent the hope was that the position would soon be Ochoa's, uh, so he was flashing a triple-A, and then he got called up again in late June, and he hit the ground running, uh, hitting 306 with a 500 slugging percentage in his first 10 games of the season, including his first career home run on July 1st of 1996 against the Phillies' Mike Williams. For Ochoa, though, it'd be a second career home run two days later that would perhaps be even more memorable, as it would factor into uh, what I believe would have the eighth cycle in Mets history at the time. Oh no, sorry, uh, sixth. Uh, had to look that up. But yeah, Hickman, A.G. Phillips, Mike Phillips, Keith Hernandez, Kevin McReynolds, then Alex Ochoa. Uh, subsequently, John Olerud, Eric Valent, Jose Reyes, Scott Hairston, and just recently, Eduardo Escobar. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. At any rate, on July 3rd of 1996, the Mets and Phillies would match up again. Fireworks night at Veterans Stadium. And Ochoa would start it off humbly, uh, singling in the top of the second, uh, the middle of three singles uh, that would help move along a base runner and play to run 
in the top of the second to give the Mets a one nothing lead. The cycle was almost abruptly terminated the next inning, though, as in the bottom of the second, Pete Incavilia of the Phillies would launch a ball deep into right center. Uh, Ochoa would hit the wall quite hard, trying to snag it, um, the collision sending pieces of the wall kind of crumbling onto the field uh, uh, with Ochoa's attempt at a leaping catch. And if memory serves, I think he was a li- looked a little shaken up for a second uh, after the play, but obviously stayed in the game and obviously did not affect his hitting. In the fourth, with the game tied 1-1, uh, the Mets would strike for three runs uh, after doubles by Jeff Kent and Todd Hundley. Ochoa would secure the hardest part of the cycle, historically, the triple, uh, by launching a line drive into the right center field gap in the vet and... Again, flashing one of those tools, his legs, to uh, leg out a triple. In the sixth, with the Mets uh, up 4-3, Ochoa would lead off the inning with a double and then come around on a Butch Husky home run to extend the Mets' lead to 6-3. But the Phillies would answer back with three runs of their own in the bottom of the sixth to tie the game at six. So it was that Ochoa came to the plate in the top of the eighth in a 6-6 game, uh, a home run short of the cycle, and uh, all the other hits were off of Mulholland, but then uh, Ken Ryan had come in to take over pitching for the Phillies with one out on a 1-2 pitch. Ochoa hit one deep over the left field wall uh, for his fourth hit of the game, completing the cycle and giving the Mets a 7-6 lead. For good measure, Ochoa would double again in the top of the ninth to extend the Mets' lead to 10 nothing. It was his fifth hit of the game. It gave him 12 total bases, which at the time was one shy of the franchise record set by Daryl Strawberry on August 5th, 1985. Uh, of course, Daryl's record would be shattered a few years later by someone on, someone else on the field that day with Alex Ochoa when he hit the cycle, one uh, Edgardo Alfonso. With his historic 6-for-6, three-home run game against the Astros in, uh, I think it was August of 99? 98, or I think it was 99. Yeah, I'm not going to look that one up, but uh, please correct me if I'm wrong. After the game, Cho, of course, reveled in the cycle, said it was probably his best game as a professional, while also icing down his shoulder, which was still sore from the wall collision. Um, I, I hit the wall pretty hard, and my shoulder is pretty sore, Ochoa said after the game, but... I guess it's all right. 1996 as a season didn't pan out so well for the Mets, though. Uh, Ochoa himself was decent, uh, combining you know some league average offense with great defense for 2.4 WAR, according to Baseball Reference for the season. Uh, but he certainly felt like a disappointment, probably because of the lack of power and speed numbers as he only had four home runs and four stolen bases in seven attempts in his 82 games. Uh, He did hit 294, uh, 336 on base, 426 slugging, so his OPS plus was 104, again, just above league average. But perhaps with the prospect type, I think people wanted more. One positive change that arose from the disappointing 1996 season was the Mets managerial change late in the year from Dallas Green to one Bobby Valentine. Valentine was young and energetic, Dallas Green was neither of those things, and Ochoa was young and I think seen as a key, still seen as a key future piece of the Mets despite not 
bursting onto the scene. Most rookies do not. Uh, but when the Mets acquired John Olerud before the 1997 season, kind of created a logjam in the outfield. Uh, look at the Mets, not caring where they put players, uh, what position they stick them in. But uh, with, again, Gilkey and Lance Johnson coming off great seasons, uh, Butch Husky kind of got moved from the infield to right field, where he ate into Ochoa's playing time that season. Uh, so his playing time dwindled and his offense suffered that year. He only had 244 on the year with a 300 on base percentage and only three homers and over 200 at bats. And again, I think he just got labeled with too much hope and, uh, you know, and too much hype. Uh, and I remember my friend and I who, you know, we're just, my friend Rob and I were so cynical after so many difficult Mets seasons and hopefully responding more to the organization's hype than the player, but I just remember, I feel like whenever Ochoa would do something good, like, you know, make a great great throw from right field, which he did have an incredible arm, I know one of us would always say, like, oh, look, that was he was, he was flashing one of those five tools right there, as it felt like the Mets had, you know, raised our hopes about another prospect that wasn't quite going to pan out. Unlike Ochoa as an individual, though, the 1997 Mets actually overachieved, as they would seem to almost every season under Bobby Valentine, in my memory. Uh, Ochoa did have one more pretty memorable Met moment in him, though, uh, as his next-to-last home run as a Met was a game-winner, effectively uh, a 10th-inning pinch-hit home run against the first-place Atlanta Braves in July. On July 13th, 1997, the Mets were playing the Braves in Atlanta in Turner Field, and you know Met wins in Turner Field uh, need to be remembered and cherished because they were not easy to come by. Uh, but this was a 6-6 to ball game in extra innings. Uh, I believe the 10th inning, uh, Ochoa came in to pinch hit for Greg McMichael uh, against Mike Bilecki, uh, and he homered deep into left center to give the Mets a 7-6 to lead. John Franco would come on to the bottom of the 10th, pitch around the requisite frustrating, maddening John Franco trouble, and complete the 7-6 victory. Uh, in late July, you know, this is against the two-time defending National League champion Braves, uh, the Mets were 51-39, and only six and a half games behind the 58-33 and Braves with the Ochoa field win, and only one and a half behind the Marlins for the wild card uh, at the time. Um, and unfortunately, those two teams would just prove too good and too hard to catch, uh, though the Mets had an enjoyable and promising season. As Mike Francesa would say, I'm a hard mocker, but uh, I remember enjoying the 97 season just because it felt unexpected. Whereas 98 was fun too, but did end in such a disappointing manner to, to make it hard to be as pleasant to remember. At any rate, my friend and I's cynicism at Ochoa's occasional flashing of one or the other of his five tools was apparently not, uh, not, we were not the only ones to have that opinion. The bloom was off the rose for him, and he was traded in the offseason to the Twins for outfielder Rich Becker. Uh, who I think the team thought would be a better fit, uh, a lefty to lefty outfielder to supplement Husky and Bernard Gilkey, and perhaps a better on-base percentage guy. Uh, thus ended the what was hoped would be a glorious uh, Alex Ochoa Met era. Although he would factor into another notable Met transaction, 
a few years later. After leaving the Mets, Ochoa had a relatively journeyman career. He played uh, basically five more seasons. Uh, 90, spent 98 with the Twins, um, 99 with the Milwaukee Brewers, uh, and 2000 and half of 2001 with the Cincinnati Reds. Actually, a really impressive year in 2000, uh, seemingly out of nowhere. He actually was pretty good in 99 with the Brewers. He hit 300, uh, 404 slugging. 870 on base percentage with a 122 OPS plus and somewhat limited playing time. Um, but in 2000 for the Reds, he had uh, basically the best year of his career. Uh, 13 homers, 58 RBIs, 9 stolen bases, uh, 316, 378, 586 for a 964 OPS. Unfortunately for Ochoa, the Reds outfield and offense was pretty stacked. I think it was Dimitri Young, Ken Griffey Jr., and Dante Bichette left to right, so he playing time was really uh, at a bit of a minimum. In those 99 and 2000 seasons, he put those numbers up over 277 and 245 at-bats, respectively. And perhaps he was just well-employed by those teams, uh, perhaps, you know, on the short side of a platoon or, you know, finding the right at-bats, because in 2001, he actually, I think, Bichette moved on from the Reds, and he kind of faltered some as their everyday right fielder and got traded to Colorado in the middle of the, or at the trade deadline in the 2001 season. And it was from the Rockies organization that Ochoa was involved in the 2002 offseason in a huge three-way trade between the Rockies, the Brewers, and the Mets. Uh, an underratedly bad Mets trade, uh, if you ask me, uh, where the Mets... Uh, Parted with uh, Benny Agbayani, Todd Zeal, Lenny Harris, and Glendon Rush. Uh, Harris and Rush going to the Brewers, Agbayani and Zeal and Cash to the Rockies. The Mets acquired from the Brewers Jeremy Bernitz and others, including Lou Collier, Jeff D'Amico, and Mark Sweeney. Sounds like some potential for some future podcasts and some of those names. I just know that. I have little but fond met memories of Lenny Harris, Glendon Rush, and Benny Agbayani, and little but anger at hearing the name of the lumbering, plotting, always striking out Jeremy Burnitz. I do not personally have many fond met memories of Todd Zeal, but in Todd Zeal's defense, he was not John Olerud and never would be, so not much one can do about that. At any event, 2002 would be Ochoa's last season in Major League Ball, but uh, fortuitously for him, at the July 31st trading deadline, he was traded to the Angels, where he would be a backup outfielder, you know, late game pinch runner, pinch hitter, defensive replacement uh, for some of their older outfielders. Uh, he would appear in 37 games down the stretch, getting only 65 plate appearances, uh, but most notably and presumably memorably for Ochoa, he would appear in 12 postseason games that year, only getting five at-bats and going 0 for 5 with three strikeouts and a pair of runs scored. Uh, but that season would make him a world champion as the Angels, of course, defeated the Giants in seven games for a World Series, making Alex Ochoa in his final Major League season a world champion. Ochoa spent the 2003 to 2006 seasons with the Chinuchi Dragons in Japan, uh, where he had moderate to decent success and uh, 
also hit for the cycle, which makes him the only player in history to have a cycle both as an MLB and an NPB player. He came back to America and signed with the Red Sox in 2007, but was released in May of 2007 without playing in the big leagues. Uh, he would return to Japan to finish out his playing career uh, and spent time in the Red Sox organization as a coach from 2009 to 2012, including as first base coach in 2012 under then-Red Sox manager Bobby Valentine. So Wallachow never quite lived up to the hype of his prospect status. Uh, he still had a pretty solid major league career. He appeared in 807 games over his career, getting 2,143 major league at-bats, and according to baseball reference, he earned 6.4 B-War over the course of his career. Uh, 46 career homers, 56 career stolen bases, uh, slash line of 279, 344, 422, 4 OPS, and a just below league average 97 OPS+. plus. He actually rated slightly negative defensively over the course of his career. He put up some great numbers, particularly for the Mets, uh, his first couple of seasons, uh, but those numbers went down perhaps as he aged he did always have a great throwing arm, but really never quite lived up to any of those five tools, uh, as one imagines a five-tool player. But still an impressive major league career. Uh, for the Mets, he appeared in parts of three seasons, uh, 206 games. He hit seven home runs, drove in 55 runs for the Mets, it was 8 of 15 in stolen bases and slashed 273, 320, 386 for a 706 OPS. Uh, and he was good for two war uh, as a Met, again, by virtue largely of a pretty solid debut in 1996, and particularly some very solid defensive numbers. Really a fair and impressive major league contribution, if unappreciated due to all that was expected of Alex Ochoa when the Mets acquired him in trade. But as we've seen, he was involved in a couple of very memorable Met transactions and made at least two of his Met home runs uh, take place in very memorable fashion, making Alex Ochoa, for us, unformidable. Thanks for taking the time to listen to Unformidable. Please go to AmazonAvenue.com for more Mets-related content and follow Amazon Avenue on all the socials. You can find this and all of our amazing pods wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe and leave us a review. Original music by Bunga. I'm on Twitter at WolfRR, W-O-L-F-F-R-R, and the show is at Unformidable. Thank you, and as always, let's go Mets! <laughs>